All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you once again for bringing us together today. We thank you that we were all able to get here safely and um, assemble as people who have been called out by your holy name. And Father, we've come for the purpose of worship, and at the center of worship is the proclamation, the study, and responding to the Word of God. And so, Father, as we now come to that time, I pray that you will speak, and that, Lord, it'll be, it'll be you speaking and not me, that your Holy Spirit will penetrate our hearts and convict us of sin when need be, conform us to Christ's likeness, and, and Lord, direct all the glory and honor to you and your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we ask this. Amen. Amen. Beloved, take your Bible, open back up to Luke 19. Luke chapter 19, last Sunday we looked at verses 28 to 44, and that event is commonly known as the triumphal entry, Uh, Jesus entering Jerusalem the week that he would be crucified, but as we saw, it was much more than that. Uh, God, particularly God the Son, Jesus the second person of the Trinity, God showed his sovereignty in Jesus We saw in that passage how Jesus fulfilled several Old Testament scriptures. Zechariah 9.9, Psalm 118.26, among others. When He entered the city, we saw that Jesus Himself exhibited sovereign omniscience, His all-knowingness, as He told the disciples exactly where to go, exactly what they would find, that cult on which no one had ever sat. Everything was decreed in advance by God. Everything was carried out by the Son of God for the glory and purposes of God. Then we saw how the crowd recognized the regality of Jesus. They cried out, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, the Son of David, the Messiah, the long-promised Savior and Deliverer, Jesus. And He was God's King, but we also saw that He was not the type of King that they really wanted. The majority of Jews wanted a political savior. They wanted political deliverance from the Roman Empire. They expected the Messiah to come into Jerusalem and then reestablish the kingdom. We also saw, as uh, let's see, okay, the danger with technology is when it doesn't cooperate. That could be a problem. Well, that hasn't happened in a long time. Uh, but there's ways around that. Um, let me uh, just uh, change something on the fly here. Sorry about that. Jesus was walking to his death. He was walking not to a throne, but to a cross. He was going to be crowned not with jewels, we saw but by thorns. And people did not understand this. And when they didn't understand it, the the, the Pharisees, they appealed to Jesus, stop the crowds from praising you. So then we saw the pronouncement of punishment. Jesus says, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. And and He sobs in agony. Remember, that that word for wept there in that passage is is an agonizing, sobbing kind of cry. Jesus was broken, in a sense, over the rejection of Israel, over the rejection of His people, the Jews, over the unbelief all around Him. And so He pronounced judgment upon them that would come. And we talked about this during the Sunday school hour, but 
four decades later, A.D. 70, when Rome came in and just decimated Jerusalem and destroyed the temple, not one stone left upon another. So the stones were crying out. But it wasn't in praise, it was in judgment for the unbelief in Jesus. The unbelief of Israel in Jesus. And so that sets the stage for the last few verses of this chapter, 45 through 48. A shorter passage, but again, it packs a punch. So let's look at it. Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling, saying to them, It is written, And my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a robber's den. And he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the leading men among the people were trying to destroy him. And they could not find anything that they might do, for all the people were hanging on to every word he said. This is Tuesday of Crucifixion Week. The events in 28 through 44 culminated on Monday when Jesus entered Jerusalem on the cult. We talked a little bit last week about why it's better to understand it as Monday and not Sunday is, is the more traditional view. Um, we can go into that again another time if we need to. But when Jesus entered Jerusalem, we read in Mark 11.11 that He went to the temple that day, that, that evening, late, late in the day. And this may have been where He wept. This may have been where He had that, that moment where He wept. But either way, Mark, what he writes in Mark's account, it's, it's interesting. He says, Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple and was looking around at everything. And he left for Bethany with the twelve since it was already late. So he enters Jerusalem, but he doesn't stay there. They end up walking two miles back to Bethany to stay. He probably stayed with Mary and Martha and Lazarus that night. Um, I think that's probably a, a pretty fair assumption. Remember, it was Passover week. So you've got up to 2 million Jews in the city of Jerusalem. Lodging would have been at a premium. But the interesting part about what Mark says there is that he was looking around at everything. Now Jesus, as we saw last week, is, is omniscient. He's all-knowing. There is no knowledge that doesn't already rest in God. But he's looking around at everything. He's taking it all in. And... He sees everything going on, and people no doubt saw him as well. What Jesus saw that Monday evening obviously moved him, not in a good way. It sets the stage for the dramatic events of Tuesday. And, and these are events that we just read, which further move the religious establishment in Israel to want Jesus dead. And they are events that demand a response from us today. And the first of those responses, beloved, is that we see here is that you must have a holy fury against sin. This morning in 2019, you must have a holy fury against sin. We read Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling. Now, less than 24 hours earlier, they've sung, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. They're hoping, if not believing, that Jesus is the Messiah. They hope that He will be the one to fulfill God's promise to David. That one of His descendants will sit on His throne forever. So it's a good thing that they're singing praises to Jesus. It's a good thing that they're crying out, Hosanna to the Son of David. Save us now, Son of David. That's good, but as we've seen and as we saw in the last passage, their ideas about 
who Messiah would be and what he would do were not truly, not fully informed at least. Their knowledge of what the Bible said about Messiah had really been overtaken by their political agendas. There's a lesson in that for us this morning. They wanted a king, but a political king, not a spiritual king. They wanted liberation from the Roman Empire, but a Messiah, they weren't looking for a Messiah to liberate sinners, and certainly not themselves from their sins. They expected someone who would be crowned by glory and not someone who would be crowned by thorns. They expected someone who would come in victorious, not someone who would be a suffering servant. But Jesus doesn't focus upon the Roman authorities when He enters Jerusalem that day, does He? There were plenty of reasons He could have. They, the Roman Empire was filled with idolatry. The, if you want to say there was an official religion of Rome, the polytheism, the, the, the many gods that were worshipped. They were immoral in many ways. To a large degree, they were very cruel and took advantage of people in the lands they conquered, which was a lot of land, a lot of people, and all for the glory of Rome. But Jesus doesn't confront them, does He? Jesus entered the temple. Jesus enters the center of where people are worshiping Yahweh, the place where, where Jews worship, Israel's worship, because more important than the relationship of the people of God to the state was the relationship between the people of God and God. Now that bears repeating this morning. More important than the relationship of the people of God to the state is the relationship of the people of God to the, their God. And in Israel, and this is certainly true in our times as well, the relationship between the people of God and God was not good. The relationship between those who considered themselves God's people and God was not good. And judgment begins not with pagans, not with idolaters, not with the Romans. You might say today that, that judgment does not begin with secularist or feminist or the homosexual and transgender agenda or, or, or judgment does not begin with Muslims. Judgment begins, beloved, with the household of God. 1 Peter 4.17 is explicit. It says, For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God, and if it begins with us first, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? What Peter's saying there is there will come a time when Jesus judges the whole world. Everybody. There will come a time. But on that Tuesday... Rather than go after the Romans, Jesus entered the temple. He entered the temple, the place Yahweh was to be worshipped. The place for the worship of, of Yahweh had been corrupted and was being corrupted. Not by the Romans, but by the Jews themselves. Now it wasn't the first time this had happened either. When Jesus began His earthly ministry, about three years before this, John 2, 13-17, we read, The Passover of the Jews was near... And Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and He found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers seated at the tables. And He made a scourge of cords and drove them, out, drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, 
and he poured out the coins of money, the coins of money changers, and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So at the beginning, and now at the end, zeal for pure worship bookends Jesus' ministry. You've got a scenario here that is almost identical to right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. It's almost as if God orchestrated this, right? To, to, to say there's something important going on here. Now let's talk about the temple for a minute. The temple was a large complex. Thousands of Jews could and did come into the temple to worship. And, and there were different sections of the temple. You had an outer wall of the temple, but when you go into the temple, then you have all of these inner courts. And each one is a little bit smaller than the one that came before it. Uh, and and as, as they get smaller, the amount of people who are allowed to go into these smaller courts shrinks too. The outermost court was called the Court of the Gentiles. And as you might discern from that name, Gentiles could go into the court of the Gentiles. But they couldn't go any further than that. They would risk death if they went any further than that. After that was a smaller court, still a fairly big one, called the court of the women. Jewish women could go in to the court of the women. Um, there's a, a gate that came that went into the, the, the court of the women. In Acts 3, the beautiful gate, it was a popular place for beggars. Um, beyond that was the court of the Israelites where Jewish men could assemble to worship. And from the court of the Israelites, you could look into the court of the priest where they would offer incense and, and, and sacrifice animals there. And in the back of the court of the priest was the temple itself. And in the temple itself, you had the holy place and then the holy of holies. And only one man could go into the holy of holies and then only once a year, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the high priest. And only then he could he go in after he'd done all the ceremonial cleansings. Jesus doesn't go all the way in there. He, he, he goes to the court of the Gentiles. And on this Tuesday, he, that's where he goes. Where what he had seen the evening before, as he looked around at everything, made him very angry. Now often... We hear and sometimes we use the term righteous indignation. And sometimes, even as Christians, we tend to use that phrase to describe our own anger even when our anger may not be actually righteous, right? Jesus, though, had truly righteous indignation. He was mad. And He had good reason to be mad. The court of the Gentiles had become a, a kind of a supermarket. And it was the epicenter of a huge racket. And the, the priests themselves, the chief priests, were in on it. You could say they were at the top. You see, it was Passover week. And because it was Passover week, that meant hundreds of thousands of animals were going to be sacrificed and sold. Except the animals had to be approved by the priest in order to be sacrificed. And that makes sense because in Exodus 12... It had to be a year-old lamb that was an unblemished male, so you couldn't bring, your, you know, spot the sheep, and, and it had it had to be a spotless lamb. So the priests, when you think about it, they actually had a vested interest 
in rejecting animals that people could bring into the city themselves. Because it meant, now you've got to buy another lamb and, hey, we sell some right here. So they sold other animals too, like doves for sacrifices. But this was absolutely a racket. And it didn't stop there. You had money changers. Now, when we think about money changers, because of these passages, we think that's a pretty negative thing. Money changers were necessary because when you have people coming in for Passover, they're coming in from everywhere. And they're bringing in all kinds of different currency. You know, euros or rubles or whatever, you know, if it was today. But you could only pay the temple tax in certain amounts in certain kinds of currency. So you had to exchange your money. Except here, they had a monopoly on that. And they were charging exorbitant service fees. Like 12.5% is, is one, what, one commentary I read uh, cited. And, and what could the people do about it? They couldn't do anything about it if they wanted to make the sacrifice. So they were stuck. It was big business. And the business was so big, it became known as the Bazaar of Annas. And now if you recognize that name, it's for good reason. Annas and Caiaphas are... Annas was the former high priest. He was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the current high priest, except Annas basically held on to his power. And they together ran what had become an extremely lucrative business operation right in the temple. They were the gatekeepers of people coming to worship Yahweh, but you had to pay their price. And that you begin to see just why Jesus was so mad. Because the, the, the temple was to be the place where God was revered, where God's people humbly came in repentant faith to express their devotion to Yahweh. Instead, it was the New York Stock Exchange, except it wasn't a free market. And it was a lot smellier, too, I'm guessing. And, and, and Jesus was infuriated. He had holy fury against the corruption of worship of His Father and the worship of Himself. A holy fury against sin. The day before, Jesus was held as the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, He is exercising that authority. Authority that He has not from the people, but that He has in and of Himself. And He began to drive out those who were selling. You know, No one else was, was, was filled with zeal for God's glory to the point they were ready to put this on the line to, to, to drive these people out. So he takes it upon himself, not for the first time, to, to shut them down. Luke doesn't get into the details of, of what Jesus did here, but it's very similar to what happened in John three years earlier. Mark 11, Matthew 21 tell us a little bit more. He drove out those doing the selling. So he, he's turning over the seats of those selling doves. He's turning over the tables of the money changers. The coins are rolling on the ground. It wouldn't surprise me if he also had a scourge of cords this time too. Um, you have to presume also that Jesus faced resistance. That, that Jesus faced resistance from these, these people making money, perhaps even from the, the chief priest. But Jesus will not be stopped. You can't stop God when He's going to do something. And that, that, that just goes to, to His zeal for pure worship. Beloved, do you have a zeal for pure worship this morning? God wants true worshipers, Jesus says in John 4, and those 
who truly worship God are those who worship in spirit and in truth. And that's what drove Jesus' holy fury against sin. And beloved, as those who this morning, and I hope this applies to all of us, as those who are being conformed to the image of Christ, those who are to be like Christ, that means that you too must have a holy fury against sin. It's not enough to be neutral about sin. It's not, it, 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 it is antithetical to what the Holy Spirit is doing in you to be passive, to be lax, to be neutral about sin. We must have a holy fury against it. You must not stand for the corruption of the worship of God. God hates those who pervert worship by their own greed, like in the court of the Gentiles, or when we subject worship to our own desires, our own standards, our own preferences, instead of what God prescribes in His Word. When we start to add or subtract from what the Word of God says because we like things a certain way or don't like things a certain way. That is something that Jesus would address if He were physically with us, and it's something... His people are to address as well. We are to have a whole, a holy fury against the corruption of worship. And we've got to stick to what God has prescribed. And where do we find what God has prescribed? Well, the second thing, the second response to this we see is that you must, you must have a holy fury against sin. You must be wholly committed to the Word of God. W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy, completely. Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling in verse 46, saying to them, It is written, My house and my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a robber's den. On what authority did Jesus remove the scourge of greed and theft and extortion from the temple? It was on the authority of Scripture. Jesus is God in in human flesh, and not even He came up with some new idea here. He simply went back to the revealed will of God in His Word. It is written, He said, and, and don't overlook that. Don't look past that. The holy fury of Jesus was justified by and grounded in the Word of God. And if you've got holy fury, you better make sure it's justified by and grounded in the Word of God. Otherwise, it's just your opinion. My house shall be a house of prayer, he said. And he's quoting Isaiah 56, verse 7 there. In fact, keep your place in Luke 19 and turn with me to Isaiah 56. Because there, God, Yahweh, is speaking through His prophet about the blessings upon those who believe in Him, those who obey Him. And He says in verse 1, For my salvation is about to come, and my righteousness to be revealed. And in verse 6, he begins to talk about Gentiles. And let's pick up in verse 6. Isaiah 56, verses 6 and 7 say this. And I want you to see this. Also the foreigners who join themselves to Yahweh, the, remember L-O-R-D, the lower caps, that's the name of God, Yahweh. Also the foreigners who join themselves to Yahweh to minister to Him and to love the name of Yahweh, to be His servants, everyone who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and holds fast My covenant, even those I will bring to My holy mountain. 
So even the foreigners he's going to bring to his holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. For all the peoples. And, and this is over 700 years before Jesus. But in the time of Jesus... The vast majority of Jews expected their Messiah, what did they expect Him to do? They expected Him to purge Israel, to purge Jerusalem, and to definitely purge the temple of Gentiles. The Gentiles were the problem, according to to what most Jews thought. Even today, where is the epicenter of the Middle East conflict? It is at the temple site which is today claimed by both Jews and Muslims. And I'm convinced that's part of the judgment of God upon Israel for their unbelief in Jesus. Because what did Jesus do? Does He purge the temple and Jerusalem and Israel of Gentiles here? No. What does Jesus do? Think about this. This is a great reversal. Jesus purged the court of the Gentiles of the Jewish money changers and profiteers. They want Gentiles gone. Jesus cast them out of the court of the Gentiles. And His actions are grounded in Isaiah 56, which He quotes here. And, I, and, and Luke says, you know, My house shall be a house of prayer. Isaiah adds, For all peoples, that, that's for all nations, ethnic groups. That, that, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's the word ethnos, from which we get ethnicity. All kinds of peoples, including Gentiles. Beloved, that's what the temple was supposed to be. A couple days ago on Facebook, I suggested on our Facebook page that you read 1 Kings 8 and Solomon's Prayer of Dedication. If you haven't done that yet, I encourage you to do that this afternoon. It's a nice kind of rainy, well, I don't know if it's still raining, but it's a, it's a day to take a nap. Don't take a nap until you've done this. Read 1 Kings 8. Make that your afternoon reading and you'll see there what the temple was supposed to be. A place in which God's name was established. Which He would look down upon and see His people. Those who entrusted themselves to Him. And what would they be doing? They would be worshiping Him and communing with Him. And praising Him. Confessing their sins. Giving their sacrifices. God even provided a place in the temple for Gentiles to do this. The house of God was to be a house of prayer for all peoples. But you have made it into a robber's den, he says. And there Jesus is quoting another prophet, Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 11, where God castigates His people. Why? Because of their wickedness. He says to Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. This is right right before the Babylonian captivity. Okay? He's saying, amend your ways and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words saying, this is the temple of Yahweh, the temple of Yahweh, the temple of Yahweh. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you try, practice justice. And then a few lines later, he says, has this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your sight? Behold, I, even I, have seen it declares Yahweh. And now Yahweh was standing right in front of them in the flesh. And Jesus saw it again. 
They made the temple of God into a robber's den. Again, a cave, literally, where, where robbers go after they've taken the plunder. Except here, the robbers were so outlandish, they were hiding in plain sight. In Jeremiah, some 600 years earlier, God had not let them continue to dwell there. Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire came in and and crushed them, destroyed the temple. And now, 40 years later, from from Luke 19, it's going to happen again. The Roman Empire that time. But the words of Jesus would not be torn down. They would never go away. Beloved, we read in Isaiah 40, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Jesus is is God in the flesh, and, and He was wholly committed to the word of God, and so too, beloved, as His people, we, I, you, we must be wholly committed to the word of God. It's not enough for us to give lip service to the value of God's Word. It's not enough for us to say, I believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. I believe in the authority of Scripture. Anybody can do that. Anybody can say the words. True commitment to that idea though, to that truth, is something that happens by the grace of God. When you hear the words of God with your heart and obey them, when you apply what God teaches to your life, obeying Him and depending on Him, it must be your life, not part of your life. And definitely not something you just do on Sundays. If you are in Christ, it must be your life. You must be wholly committed to the Word of God. But if you are, if you are wholly committed to the Word of God, know this. We've seen that you must have a holy fury against sin. You must be wholly committed to God's Word. The third thing you need to know is that sin is wholly committed against you. Sin is wholly committed against you. Now in Jeremiah we read, do not trust in deceptive words. Sin is not going to make you think it's against you. But sin is against you. Okay? Jesus' commitment to the Word of God continued to be demonstrated in, in verse 47. He was teaching daily in the temple, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday of that week before His earthly death. He, he sets temple operations right, and He's teaching in the house of God for three days at least. The temple was something like what it was supposed to have been all along. Jesus is, is showing compassion to the people. How is He showing compassion to the people? By teaching them the truth. Beloved, by preaching the gospel, by warning the people about a judgment that's coming, warning people against false leaders and false teachers and heretics and and hypocrites, that's true compassion. That's true compassion, not preaching that satisfies your senses, not preaching that, that, that sends you home every week with a warm and fuzzy feeling, not not uh, preaching that, that smooths out the road for sinners on the way to the lake of fire. No, that's, that's not compassion. That's sin. True compassion is lovingly and clearly proclaiming the truth of the gospel. And that's what Jesus was doing. 
confronting people in their sin, warning people of the consequences, giving them the solution, which was himself. But, verse 47, the chief priests and the scribes and the leading men among the people were trying to destroy him. Because Jesus is the personification of goodness and and righteousness and holiness and truth. But the very people who were charged with communicating that to the people are the ones trying to destroy Jesus. Beloved, this morning, be prepared. Because when you seek to live wholly committed to the Word of God, even people who are supposedly committed themselves might try to come against you. Might speak against you. Seek to derail you. Seek to bump you off course. You know, I've said this before, I'll say it again. Satan is not looking for you to go out there and proclaim that Christianity is a lie and Jesus is blah, blah, blah. Satan, he's much more shrewd than that. He just wants to bump you off course. He, he wants to bump you off course and get you to start thinking, maybe this doesn't have all the answers. Maybe it has some of the answers, but maybe it doesn't have all the answers. And then it's the line of the angle. Once you get bumped off course, you keep going off course, and the more you go off course, the longer that goes, the longer away you get from the truth. Beloved, that's what was happening in Israel. They had gotten completely bumped off course so that by the time of Jesus, they were pretty far away. For Jesus, the religious leaders of Israel were the the guilty party. For you, it may be your co-workers, your bosses, maybe your friends who try to bump you off course. And they they might not even be consciously aware they're doing it. It could be your family. It could be your children. It could be your parents. It could be your spouse. Beloved, what will you do when that happens? What will you do when that happens? Because even if you stay committed through all of that, guess what? You still have your own personal sin that you have to deal with all the time. What will you do when that happens? From the beginning we see... Sin is crouching at the door. And its desire is for you. That's what what God said to Cain. The father of sin, the devil, our adversary, prowls around like a roaring lion, according to 1 Peter, seeking someone to devour. And and we are are sinners, and, and we are sinners, and we are living amongst sinners in a world that is super saturated with sin. And the wages of sin is death. So when you live committed to the Word of God with a holy fury against sin, Paul writes that, guess what? You're going to be the aroma of life leading to life, and you're going to be the aroma of death leading to death. So for some, you're going to lead people to Jesus. For others, they're going to hate you and try to bring you down. Try to knock you off course. Obedience to Christ will turn many off of you. Sin will come for you. So you're going to have to do something. You're going to have to throw yourself at the feet of Jesus. The way they threw their coats down in front of Him the day before. Last week we saw that and, and, and 
that was a, a way of expressing willing submission to the rightful king. That's what you're going to have to do with your life. Willingly submit your life day in, day out to the rightful king. You're going to have to depend completely on His grace. It's all of His grace. It's all of His mercy. It's all of, thank God for His forgiveness. And we're going to have to, you're going to have to rest in what He has accomplished for sinners, what He would accomplish three days later at the cross. And then on the third day rise again. You're going to have to trust in Jesus. The only way to have a holy fury against sin and be committed to His Word and withstand sin's assault on you is to throw yourself upon Jesus Christ. You're going to have to believe in the Gospel. That God's requirement is perfect righteousness and you can't meet that requirement because you're a sinner. The result of nothing changes is eternity in the lake of fire, but God's one and only solution is Jesus And the only way to come to Him is by faith. Not by the things you do, but by the things He has done and trusting in Him. And anything apart from that will rob God of His glory. Anything that mangles that will corrupt the worship of God. And this passage shows us how Jesus feels about that. Beloved, be warned of the holy fury God has against your sin. Be resolved to attach yourself completely to the Word of God, including the Word made flesh who bore your sin on the cross. And be ready for when sin tries to tear you apart from Him. Thank God, thank God this morning, that for those of us who are in Christ, neither height nor depth nor any created thing, nothing can separate us, Paul says. Nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Nothing. In Luke 19, the king cleaned his house. This morning, come to him with the house that is your heart. The house that is your life. And plead for him to clean it too. It could be this morning that you need to come to Christ, period. That when all is said and done and all the soul searching is said and done, you don't really know Him. He doesn't know you. You may be one from whom He later says, Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I don't know you. Come to know Christ today. If you need help knowing how to do that, Scott's going to play a song here in a minute. You're going to get a chance to respond now. If you desire, if God so leads you, and I pray He he would, you can come talk to me, you can talk to Scott. If you are in Christ, if you like me are a Christian this morning, but sin has come after you and it seems like sin is winning, beloved, confess that to Jesus this morning. And repent. And if you need someone to pray with you, we can do that too. He has saved you. Trust in Him who has saved you. Your sufficiency isn't found in how well you do. Remember that. And be comforted. Your sufficiency, my sufficiency, is not found in how many check marks we we check off. 
It's found in Christ. So come to Him this morning. Remember Christ as we pray. Father, thank You again for this day. Thank You for Your Word. And I pray that You would clean our, our hearts this morning. As, as, as Jesus cleaned His house, may, may our hearts be the temple of the Holy Spirit. May You clean our house this morning too, Father. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.